Welcome to a reprise episode of Why Are They So Angry, where we look at America's history to expose systemic racism in its institutions. We're taking a short break, but while we're away, we're reprising some of our most popular episodes. One of those episodes was about actual physical segregation walls built in neighborhoods to separate Blacks from whites. Those walls were nicknamed America's Berlin Wall, which is the title of today's episode. Well, hey, Courtney, you know, I'm a former English teacher and I love teaching um, poetry when I taught high school English. One of my favorite poets was Robert Frost, and he wrote these words, something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. Now, the poem goes on to describe his next door neighbor who's putting up the wall and he describes him as an unthinking, primitive, piling rocks atop one another, as he says, like an old stone savage armed. Well, I remember being in high school and reading that famous poem, but walls don't just have to be stones put up by a neighbor. They can be anything, even policies, procedures, and practices. See what I did there, listeners? (laughs) But regardless of what the wall is made of, stone, steel, or unjust policies, it often only has two purposes, to keep someone out or keep someone in. That's exactly right. Two purposes. And from biblical Jericho, remember the walls of Jericho to the modern Mexico wall between the United States and Mexico, walls have been erected supposedly to stop terrorists, immigrants, armies, drugs, weapons, foreigners, undesired races and creeds and tribes. The Romans, for example, built Hadrian's Wall to keep out the barbarians and the Chinese built the Great Wall to keep out rival nations. And those are some pretty ancient, famous walls, Aunt Carol, following those same principles of keeping out or keeping in. But there is a wall that's pretty modern that you're going to tell us about, which is also a forbidding physical presence that served that same purpose. But it was turned into a piece of art that inspired so many, such as artists, musicians and authors, to continue their fight to bring it down. And it is a reminder to those to those trapped behind it that they were not forgotten. Yep, yep, Courtney, that famous wall is the modern-day wall called the Berlin Wall. Now, communist East Germany built it and claimed it was protecting its people from Western invaders. Now, the structure's real name, its official name, was the Anti-Fascist Bulwark. But in fact, East Germany erected the wall to pin in its own citizens, Um, most many of whom had been defecting to the capitalist West in mass numbers. Now, I was born in 1982, but I can remember even as a kid hearing about the Berlin Wall and being aware of it. Now, one of our family members, your sister, my aunt Marcia, lived in Germany and was able to see the wall and all of its terrifying glory um, while she was stationed over there. Now, for Generation X and us older millennials, MTV played a big role in what we knew about the Berlin Wall. Songs by Elton John, the Scorpions, and even one of the most famous songs by David Bowie named Heroes were all inspired by the Berlin Walls and Berlin Wall and the atrocities behind it. 
Now, Western music was strongly uh, sanctioned and censored in the Eastern portion of Berlin. But that song by David Bowie, Heroes, became kind of a freedom anthem for the young people in the German Democratic Republic. So if they got a hold to a tape of that song, that was a pretty big deal. Now, in 1987, there was a huge open air festival for three nights in West Berlin near the wall and 70,000 people attended famous names like, again, David Bowie, uh, the Eurythmics and Genesis and other artists performed. Eastern Berliners spontaneously began showing up around the wall and sang the songs along with of the concert goers until a communist riot broke them up. And now, and that happened in both of our lifetimes, but mm -hmm. this event is considered one of the many sparks that ignited the flame of freedom that ended up knocking down that wall in 1989. Well, you have your history really on point as usual, my dear niece. And um, that information about the art and artists that um, were used to basically attack that wall. That's very important because walls have to come down. Walls really should not be built for subversive reasons like the Berlin Wall. But not only can walls pin people in, they can also undermine community, creating and cementing an us against them kind of antagonism. Now, what happens when walls go up is whoever built the wall Actually, they're avoiding resolving the problems that they face. For example, the East Berlin uh, Wall, the Germans, the East Germans, instead of trying to figure out a way to entice their uh, citizens to remain in East Germany, they just put up a wall. Now, Seth and Lowe, an environmental psychologist at the City University of New York Graduate Center and author of a book on gated communities, put it this way, a wall or gate tells you every day that there are dangerous people right outside who want to destroy you. She describes them as hard barriers that create fear. So what does all this talk about poetry, walls, fear, all of that have to do with systemic racism? Well, my dear niece, for years in this country, the United States of America, city planners and neighborhood developers have used actual physical walls and barriers as tools to separate Black African-Americans from whites. These have come to be called segregation walls, and it's systemic racism through architecture. Now, since 2017, um, a gentleman named Chat Travieso has been working on research titled A Nation of Walls, and he's been investigating the history of segregation walls, fences, road barricades, and buffer strips, these physical barriers constructed throughout the United States to separate Black and white communities. Now, he has uncovered evidence of 26 existing or demolished or planned segregation walls, fences, road barricades, and so on in these states, Alabama, California, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Missouri, New York, Ohio, Tennessee, and Virginia, virtually North and South all over the U.S., Wow. Like you said, systemic racism through architecture, visual reminders of America's history of systemic racism. And I think most of us who live in those states or even the cities where those walls are or once were didn't even know about them. That's true. And that history has to be uh, shared so that people understand that 
when you're fighting against the Berlin Wall, really, that same kind of separation was going on right here in the United States. Now, segregation walls often reinforce those exclusionary policies that we talked about in other of our uh, podcast uh, policies such as redlining, that practice that began in the 1930s where Black African-American neighborhoods were labeled hazardous. And the government actually had uh, color-coded maps that they used to tell lenders where to lend or not to lend. Now, remember, we talked about this practice in our second episode about Dr. Sweet. Now, realty companies would sometimes actually build walls in conjunction with new residential developments to delineate the racial boundaries and actually qualify for federal loans, as was the case in Detroit in the early 1940s. This happened when a white developer who wanted to build a white-only subdivision just to the west of an existing Black African-American enclave made a deal with the Federal Housing Administration, that means the federal government, he made a deal to erect a wall in return for FHA-approved financing. So he was able to get money to build his development simply because he agreed to put up a wall between Blacks and whites. Now, not only did developers put up walls, but white municipalities also built walls and fences and road barricades as tools of intimidation. These barriers represented the limits where Black uh, residents could travel safely. Now, James Lowen's book, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, explains that practice. In other words, if a Black African-American were in a neighborhood and there were walls and barriers put up, that was a physical symbol to that person. Don't cross over here or don't be uh, caught back here after sun goes down. Anything could happen to you. And it usually did. Now, if our listeners want a visual of what a sundown town would be or a fear of a sundown town, check out episode two of Lovecraft Country. That is one of the most terrifying episodes because the monsters are scary, but the chase out of town really makes my heart beat. But I like how we're connecting the dots, Aunt Carol. We went back to the episode with Dr. Sweet on real estate and then tying it into this episode as well. It's layer upon layer and dimension upon dimension of how the government played a role in either walling in African-Americans or walling them out um, from places to live. Yes, they did. And ultimately, that has a lot to do with the generational wealth gap that we're experiencing right now in this country between Black and African-American communities and whites. Now, in addition addition to marking the border between Black and white neighborhoods, these barriers were often physical obstructions as well that forced Black residents to take circuitous routes to reach critical amenities. Uh, We kind of take it for granted now that we can just jump in our car or walk down the block to get to the things that we want to get to. But that isn't always and wasn't always the case in these communities that had these segregation walls. For instance, a 10-block segregation fence built in the 1940s right here in Texas in Fort Worth kept African-American residents of the Como neighborhood from accessing the nearest public library and grocery store all the way up to the 1970s. And there's a half mile race wall in Melbourne, Florida to this day that blocks a more direct path to the nearest elementary school. And that wall requires black African-American school children to walk around to the north or the south end of the wall in order to get to school. 
And that's kind of a sinister place uh, to place that type of wall. It's kind of like early indoctrination to stay in your place and know where you belong. Right. That physical symbol, that physical wall became more than just a wall. It was a symbol, as you say. So as you can see, Courtney, America is no stranger to walling people in or out of certain areas. In fact, segregation walls constructed after 1961 were frequently nicknamed that city's Berlin Wall. And I believe you have a story about Atlanta and its Berlin Wall. I do, Aunt Carol. Now, many people, when they think of Atlanta, they think hip hop, they think the center of Black America right now. But that wasn't always the case. Now, what happens when you take an all-white neighborhood, a Morehouse graduate, and a pretty progressive mayor who wants to segregate the, the town, who is used to being segregated? Well, you have a little bit of drama, and that's what I'm going to share with our listeners today. Now, we've already laid the groundwork for what a segregation wall is and their only purpose being to keep Black people out of places that whites did not want them to be. And that is exactly what was going on in Southwest Atlanta when Ivan Allen Jr. became, became the mayor of Atlanta. Now, segregation at this time was still the status quo. And as the civil rights movement was sweeping across the South, many white Southern whites feared that integration of their schools and neighborhoods and businesses and things that they were so used to having to themselves would be coming to an end really, really end times things on, on there and thinking, you know, this is the world is coming to an end with integration. But Mayor Allen um, wanted to move the city forward. At one time, he had been pro-segregation, but the times had changed. And by the time he came around to run for mayor, he was running against one of the most infamous segregationists in the South. And that was Lester Maddox. Who I remember him well. <laughs> My, he and Bill Bull Connor were right there in the same category. So you know the kind of guy that we're running up against. But Mayor Allen did win by getting the Black vote and getting African-American voters in Atlanta to the polls um, by using the platform of desegregation. He wanted to desegregate the public schools. And that was a huge part of the campaign, saying that Atlanta's future uh, was segregated was integration and that we must break down barriers. On his first day, he ordered all of the white and colored only signs removed from City Hall. He, he desegregated the cafeteria uh, in government and city buildings. Um, he was also in charge of putting together like an in integration task force. Um, he hired the first black firefighters and police officers and gave those police officers, those black police officers, the go ahead to arrest white criminals and suspects, which is a huge deal. Well, this and, guy is pretty progressive, Courtney. I'm, I'm surprised. Atlanta, Georgia, and all of these amazing changes. Wow. He was progressive, but well, you'll see. He's trying, but he doesn't forget who still holds the power. Well, despite all the things that Mayor Allen was doing, um, Atlanta was still a Southern town. It was still a Southern city and segregation and white only neighborhoods were still the status quo. And that especially was going on in Cascade Heights. Now, 
that neighborhood slowly was beginning to see racial transformation in the early 60s as the black middle class began to move out of the crowded city center. As often was the case with these predominantly white neighborhoods, when those transitions began to happen, fear sunk in and tactics like we know of blockbusting and redlining were soon to follow. So any of our real estate episodes our listeners can go back to and see what that meant. So what was happening, which was often the case in predominantly white neighborhoods, when they began to see a transition of black middle class moving into those neighborhoods, they began to either leave, which is white flight, or they would sell their homes to shady real estate agencies who purposefully would raise the prices on these homes to black African American homeowners. Now, for the residents of Peyton Forest, which was a small, still white subdivision in Cascade Heights, they chose to do something very, very different. Now, in December 1962, they found out that their newest neighbor would be a surgeon, a very young surgeon, by the name of Dr. Clinton Warner. He was a D-Day veteran, and he bought a wonderful home of 3,000 square feet for $65,000 on 21 acres of land on Fielding Lane. Now, when the neighbors heard about this, they were not excited at all. I would be excited to have this type of a neighbor, but they were not. As soon as they found out they will be sharing their neighborhood with Dr. Warner, they went into action to prevent any further intrusion. Hmm. Well, uh, Courtney, I want to make sure I understand. You said they did something different because other people, they did white flight or they'd sell their homes at these exorbitant prices, but they had a different plan. Their different plan. They knew they couldn't out and out say you can't live here but they wanted to put something up that he would be the only person in that neighborhood so no further intrusion by african-americans okay so like we were talking about they wanted to put up a physical barrier between them and any other african-american so-called neighbors that they would have so the board of aldermen got together on december 17th and approved a quick legislation to put up a barrier in the neighborhood and the mayor went ahead and approved it now this was progressive mayor allen this is progressive mayor allen and i'll talk he thought he was thinking one way not thinking okay what are they doing there and i'll explain what his thought process was but this was still a huge misstep but he had one thought process and the people had another Mm. Now, on December 17th, it was approved and the small little road close sign, a little wooden barrier was put up. Now, it's no Berlin Wall or Great Wall of China, but it said enough and it it left a large message, a loud message to the African-Americans who understood it. You're not welcome here. Now, the reaction from the African-American community was immediate, but even some white people saw the hypocrisy in a mayor who claimed to want diversity and integration, but when an all-white neighborhood requested a wall be put up, he went along with it. How could a mayor who claimed to be against segregation be okay with putting up a physical barrier to continue segregation? Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. It's like he's talking out of uh, both sides of the mouth. 
Now, one of those people who was quick to point out this hypocrisy was a white uh, alderman by the name of Rodney Mimis Cook. In fact, he was the only alderman who voted against putting up the barrier in the first place. He spoke out against it, giving a fiery speech at the Georgia State Capitol, where he was also a state representative. He demanded that the barrier be taken down immediately. And the response he got from making that demand was very scary. According to Mimis's son, he, after his father gave that speech, the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross in his yard. Oh my, intimidation. In Rodney Cook's mind, the wall was just another attempt by Mayor Allen to prevent African-Americans from going into white neighborhoods. Now that doesn't sound like the Mayor Allen that we know, but uh, Alderman Cook didn't trust Mayor Allen from the very beginning because when he asked and supported an African-American cemetery to be put in the city's southwest side, uh, Mayor Allen said no. So this just confirmed what Cook believed about Allen. You just want the black vote, but you don't want to be uh, about black people. Oh, he was pandering. Yes. Now, the barrier, as small as it was, and just think of, it's just a small road close sign but it was a public relations nightmare for the city of Atlanta, with many people calling it, like you said, Atlanta's Berlin Wall. And that was another irony about Mayor Allen, who specifically named the Berlin Wall in one of his campaign speeches. He said that the Berlin Wall was an example of what happens when people allow hate to divide their city. Oh, sometimes things come back to bite us. Oh, yes, they do. And the protesters remembering that speech carried signs that said, we don't want a Berlin Wall in Atlanta or don't wall us into a Warsaw ghetto. Things like that to call to remembrance all the claims that Mayor Allen had made in his speech. But protests at City Hall were not the only tools at the disposal of African-Americans and those against the wall on Peyton Road. Um, they also boycotted businesses in Atlanta's West End, several human rights groups, uh, including the C Committee on the Appeal for Human Rights, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and the NAACP all banded together to have boycotts and other demonstrations to show that they were against the wall. The president of the NAACP called the barricade one of Atlanta's most gravest mistakes and a slap to the face of our national creed of democracy and justice. In a December 22nd letter sent by the Committee on Appeal for Human Rights to Mayor Allen, they explained that they would be continuing their efforts of civil disobedience against the wall and had plans to gather the support from the student bodies of the surrounding historically black colleges in colleges and universities in protest at the wall itself aka mayor this is going to be a very long winter well they marshaled all the groups and they were out to uh get that wall down now the mayor sent his own response via telegram the next day explaining that he had assembled his own committee to look at the matter of the wall now, while the mayor was, you know, sending those telegrams to call his bluff, SNCC chair James Foreman staged a publicity stunt where he met a white resident of Cascade Heights at the barricade and had a vote like photographers there where we, they met and they shook hands. And that picture was published in January of the January issue of Jet in 1963. 
Now, many other publications and journalists from across the United States began to cover the Atlanta Berlin Wall, with Time magazine discussing the event in an article called Divided City. Now, after the break, I will share with you and our listeners what happened to the wall, the mayor, and the neighborhood at the center of it all. Well, Courtney, this is all building up to quite a uh, disagreement between politicians, city residents, uh, whites, blacks, and it's obviously coming to a head. Now, even though I was only seven years old when the Berlin Wall went up, I remember the hubbub that event caused and how it was continuously reported in the news. So I can imagine that who knew that just a year later, Atlanta would have its own version of the Berlin Wall, this time one to keep people out. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happened to Atlanta's Berlin Wall. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, See you there. Well, Courtney, we are back. And um, as I recall, it took 28 years for the Berlin Wall to come down. Was that the case with Atlanta's version of their wall? Well, it's not going to take that long, but there is some exciting details of what happened to get it taken down. Now, when we left off, the white residents of the Cascade Heights neighborhood of uh, Peyton Forest had gotten to approval from the mayor and their board of aldermen to have a three foot wide road closed barrier placed on the road leading into their neighborhood to make sure that no more African-Americans would follow the example of Dr. Clinton Warner and try to integrate their neighborhood. In all of this, Mayor Allen was confused at the bad press. And I'm sure everyone's wondering, well, what was Mayor Allen thinking? He seemed so cool, wanting to integrate. Why would he do this? And he was very confused. He was thinking, well, if I put this wall up, it will push African-Americans to use hundreds of acres of unused land in the northern part of Cascade Heights. And that's where he wanted African-Americans to build their homes and businesses. But as you can see, this was an epic fail. Well, obviously he was tone deaf to what was going on in the time, but uh, let's hear what he did. As as we say now, he did not read the room. No, not at all. Now on January 7th, 1963, Atlanta's Board of Aldermen once again voted to keep the wall up. But this time, there would be more uh, opposition to the wall. Now, following this vote, an attorney stepped up to appeal the case in the Fulton County Superior Court. Now, during these court proceedings, there was some activity over at the wall itself. Citizens on both sides began to take action. One night, Black residents tore the, the barrier down and threw them into the creek. The next day, white residents tried to rebuild the wall with rocks and trees um, and had people guarding the wall. Um, at night, they would also uh, 
bring in Klansmen to guard the wall, holding signs that say white rights matter. My goodness, it's uh, the Berlin Wall. It's a wonder somebody didn't try to, to, to dig a tunnel underneath of it like they did in Berlin. Anyway, what happened next? All this for a tiny road close sign. <laughs> but at the end, Berlin, Atlanta's Berlin Wall only stayed up for 72 days. The city of Atlanta lost its lawsuit that was filed against it um, in the Fulton County Superior Court. And Mayor Allen announced that there would be no appeal. And in 20 minutes after the judgment, road crews who were already on standby took down the sign. <laughs> so the goal to keep Peyton Forest an all-white neighborhood failed. And within a month, half of the neighborhood um, had their houses on the market, and each home had a Black broker and a Black buyer. Wow. So basically, their effort to keep Black African Americans out failed, and so they chose the tried-and-true white flight method. That's right. But we had Black ownership in those homes and what my grandmother used to always say what somebody meant for evil there was it was also meant for good mm. you have people living and growing up in that neighborhood like Andrew Young John Lewis and Hank Aaron and moving forward many black luminaries and upper middle class lived in that neighborhood now, Mayor Allen may have learned from his mistake. He actually did. He would continue to struggle and fight and stay the course against racism and for civil rights. He was called to speak in front of Congress by JFK himself. Uh, Mayor Allen gave his testimony and he was told by both black and white leaders, do not do this. This is career suicide. But nevertheless, he did testify in front of Congress um, for civil rights. And he lost lots of friends, um, lots of white friends, because he was the only Southern white politician to stand up and to speak out against uh, segregation and for civil rights. Wow. So he was uh, somewhat redeemed himself. He did somewhat redeem himself. He received death threats. His family was threatened. And I think what he said later on kind of stuck out to me, and I'm paraphrasing it, is that when he first thought about desegregating Atlanta, it was a business idea because he said, we're too busy to be racist. But as he learned more about his African-American constituents and worked with civil rights leaders and groups and saw what was really going on, it became a moral fight for him. But one person we really haven't talked about at all, the man who started it all, was Dr. Clinton, Dr. Clinton Warner Jr. Hmm, okay, well, yeah, I'd love to hear how he worked into this because the, the barrier obviously was put up about him. Well, while all of this hubbub was going on, um, he was involved quietly. He was a civil rights uh, leader, but he always said that he kind of stayed out of the, the limelight. But he began, he be became one of the founding members of the Morehouse College School of Medicine. He has served on as the president of the Georgia State Medical Association. He was the president and treasurer of the Atlanta Medical Association. And he's also served as the chairman emeritus of the Mutual Federal Association Bank and as a board member of Blue Cross Blue Shield Inc. Atlanta. Now, Dr. Warner, um, like I said, always tried to stay out of the limelight, but he said this in a 2004 quote, although I was trying to work hard to make a living, I did make it my duty to step up and try to stop segregation and racism every chance I got. 
Now, Dr. Warner passed away at the age of 88, and he's been laid to rest at his beloved Morehouse University. Well, Courtney, that's quite a story about Atlanta's Berlin Wall. It didn't take uh, long to bring it down, though, and uh, but it also didn't take long for white flight to convert the neighborhood to an all-Black African-American one. But an all-Black African-American one, as you pointed out, full of very distinguished and important uh, people in the civil rights movement and uh, in Black African-American history in general. Now, if this had, if this had been an effort to integrate it actually was kind of a fail. Uh, it was a big fail, Aunt Carol, true. But at least in the words of Ronald Reagan, tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev. The mayor did tear down the, the Atlanta Berlin Wall. So what's the situation today with segregated neighborhoods and segregation walls? Are they still a problem? Well, situations like Atlanta have come up again and even reached the Supreme Court. Sarah Schindler has studied how barriers can accomplish policy goals that elected officials can't achieve through political means. So, for example, in Atlanta, uh, even though they tried to pass the um, that legislation, I mean, the local legislation to put up the wall, it didn't work. But Sarah Schindler says that there are ways to use policy to get what, what we want. Now, remember, we've always said systemic racism can be created and upheld through policies. And she says the existence of the wall constrains and shapes behavior just as much as, if not more than, law. So in other words, even though there's not a law, putting up a physical barrier barrier can actually bring about the same kind of segregation and uh, the us against them uh, mentality. She explains that while it's unconstitutional to bar people from a neighborhood based on race or poverty, now that's the law, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a six to three ruling in 1981 that the city of Memphis could barricade a street that connected a white neighborhood with a black African-American one. White residents had asked for the road to be closed to ease, quote, traffic pollution and to keep out undesirable traffic. So that's a policy. And the Supreme Court upheld it. Now, the court rejected claims by Black residents that the barrier was intended to divide the races. The court went on to say that the fact that most of the drivers who will be inconvenienced by the action are Black was merely a symbolic significance. Now, in another example, when policy overrode law, uh, it involved residents of Miami's affluent Morningside neighborhood, a majority white area located immediately west of the majority Black African-American community of Little Haiti. Now they have chosen to block every road leading into Morningside with landscaped barricades. And most of those were installed as early as the 1990s. And uh, if they didn't put up barricades, they put up security gates. And those were installed in the 2000s, despite the fact that there's a public park within the borders of the neighborhood. So they use policy to, again, wall people in and wall people out. And my husband lived in Miami for two years, and I did ask him about this, and he's seen it, and you, he said you can see the stark transition between the two neighborhoods. It's like night and day. So the barrier worked. 
It did. It did. And it still does, obviously. Now, although these two instances aren't technically the blatant neighborhood segregation of the past, it seems that relatively little has changed in the numbers of segregated communities and neighborhoods, despite anti-discriminatory legislation and efforts by various social groups, social movements, and federal and local institutions. As a result, Residential segregation has led to exclusion in other areas of life, including schools, workplaces, places of worship, healthcare systems, entertainment, and leisure. And to add to the problem, although we don't have examples of overt segregation and segregation walls today, Courtney, there's a new game in town that's pretty similar. It's called the gated community. Ah, yes, the gated community. And anyone that uh, listens to hip hop music is probably aware of the rapper T.I. In the early 2000s, when he moved into his first gated community, I'll never forget that he was stopped and asked by the security guard, do you belong here? I will never forget that. Mm, Once again, walling in and walling out. Now, throughout the history of the United States, gated communities have actually evolved significantly. Now, although they initially served as a means of protection, protection for American colonizers in <laughs> so those people who came and basically stole the land. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, fortified residential communities developed into areas that provided prestige, privacy, and protection for wealthy inhabitants. Now, modern gated communities became common as developers built gated retirement communities, country clubs, and resorts. Now, today's residential communities that are gated have different faces. Both houses and apartment complexes and people living in these communities are somewhat more diverse than those of the past. Well, I think we've all seen these types of like gated communities or residential communities, and they look like places that we would want to live. They're the Fresh Prince of Bel Air type areas. But now that I've learned about the, seg- the segregation walls, they kind of have a more sinister tint now. They do. Absolutely, they do. Now, most commonly, a gated community is considered to be a residential area that is enclosed by walls, fences, or landscaping that provides a physical barrier to entry, basically like the old segregation walls that we've been talking about. Now, access to a gated community is restricted not only to personal residences, but also to streets, sidewalks, and neighborhood amenities. Now, a very important aspect of most gated communities is that they are characterized by self-governing homeowner associations, where elected boards oversee the common property and establish covenants, conditions, and restrictions as part of the deeds on the houses in the community. So just another way and other, other ways that people are finding to keep the races apart. That would be the case, my dear niece, that would seem to be that case. But there are some other glimmers of hope, and that hope comes in the form of education. For example, Arlington, Virginia's segregation wall once went up in segments in the 1930s to separate white-owned homes in the Highview Park from homes in a neighborhood to the south. It was, you know, actually a patchwork of separate fences and walls and barriers uh, uh, between the black and, and white portions of the city. Now, after the schools were integrated, parents in that community successfully petitioned to remove part of the wall in order to make it easier for kids to walk to school. But much of it remained. Ironically, 
much of what is left of the wall was washed away in a torrential rainstorm in 2019. So in Robert Frost's words, something there is that doesn't love a wall. Now today, historical walking tour groups often stop to see the wall, and it's a way to teach people about Jim Crow and uh, what uh, systemic racism, racism looks and feels like. Now the county erected a historical marker at one end of the wall explaining to passersby why and when it had been constructed. So much like using architecture to promote systemic racism, this old architecture is being repurposed to teach about it. That's so true, Courtney. Now in an other effort to preserve the history of segregation walls, Chat Travieso is developing a website with interactive maps showing the history of all these barriers and presenting archival materials and information for each structure. Now he intends this participatory research tool to give historians and community members the opportunity to add to this work and share their experience. In essence, he wants the history preserved so we understand the systemically racist policies that literally allowed physical barriers to be erected to preserve racial segregation. Now, if any of our listeners have information on segregation walls and their location, um, he would like for you to contact him and his website in his uh, show, in our show notes, you can see uh, how to do that and just click on a nation of walls. And that's a way that people can get that physical uh, making history come alive. So I definitely recommend doing that. I do too. Now, Jane Leffler, an architectural historian who has studied the fortification of U.S. embassies after the 1983 bombing of the embassy in Lebanon, summed it up best for me. She said, quote, a wall is so primitive. You can dig under it, go over it, catapult yourself over it. A wall is more symbolic than a real defense. A wall is fear in three dimensions. Now, I think that sums that the, this episode up perfectly. So listeners, if you want to contact us in between now and the next episode, please visit our website at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.